You're listening to Live with the League, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications for the Michigan Municipal League. And you are now watching Live with the League, which is our uh, every other week uh, Monday conversation about uh, things happening related to our members and our communities and the Michigan Municipal League. And um, today uh, we have uh, most of our Lansing team, uh, of course, with the Easter break, everybody's trying to get in there on vacation day. So uh, Chris Hackbarth is not with us today, but he'll probably be back our next show on the uh, April 19th. So uh, we do have a guest today. I wanted to kick off introducing her, Emily Kalaszewski with the Michigan Municipal League. Uh, welcome, Emily, to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Glad to be here. Yeah. Emily's been on before. I think she even subbed for me once when I was on vacation as a host. So she's a, an old pro to live with the league. Um, so Emily, I just had wanted to have you on today to talk about our Community Excellence Award Program. This is our annual awards where we recognize things uh, that our members are doing in their communities. We launched it at our Capital Conference uh, a couple weeks ago, and now the, the registration period is now open. So talk a little bit about the program and, and some of the dates coming up that, that members should know about. Sure. So our Community Excellence Award is the league's most prestigious community honor. We've been highlighting and uplifting the work of Michigan municipalities through this program since 2007. We took a pause last year during the COVID-19 pandemic, but I'm excited to report that the program is back this year. Um, so our application period opened at Capital Conference back in March. And we are accepting projects that our communities are doing, whether it relates to intergovernmental cooperation, civic engagement, placemaking, redevelopment, all of those sort of traditional topics that we've accepted projects on over the last few years. Um, and this year, because we recognize that our communities have been doing tremendous work as it relates to COVID-19 response and recovery, we're also selecting or accepting, I should say, projects that relate to that topic as well. Um, so interested communities can go to our website, cea.mml.org, to learn more about our Community Excellence Award uh, process and what it's like to submit a project. And that's where communities can also go to submit their projects by May 14th. So we want to make sure we get them all in by that time. Right. Um, from, oh, go ahead, Matt. No, no, I was just going to talk a little bit about the awards itself. Of course, this is a program, sure. I believe, no, no problem. This is a program I believe we launched in 2007, even before my time yeah. at the league. Um, so we've been going on for a long time. And we've seen a whole range of projects. So I want communities to know that you know, it might even be something they didn't really think of, or maybe something they take for granted in their community that might be different. Um, because we've had everything from, you know, new wastewater treatment plants to uh, uh, goal setting sessions that our council have done have, have been past winners. So talk a little bit about some of the entries and, and really how our members could kind of look at a lot of different things they're doing in their communities. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that our communities uh, might want to check out our website for. Um, and we'll also be putting out a couple of videos with examples of past applicants uh, and past winners. We've seen things like kayak launches, um, farmers markets. Uh, our previous winner uh, from 2019 was the Uptown Bay City Project, uh, obviously in Bay City, Michigan, which is a, a large redevelopment. Um, Hudsonville Terrace Square, which is a which is an interesting space. But what's great about our website is that we keep up all of the applications um, from our previous years. So communities can go and check out what other municipalities have submitted in years past. 
Uh, I know we received an early application before we even opened up uh, the application period. A, a community submitted for their virtual 4th of July parade that they held uh, this past year because of COVID. Yeah. Um, so there's a host of projects and we, we really wanna see them all. This is an opportunity for us to uplift the efforts of local governments. And I think right now in particular, there's never been a better time to honor really the remarkable things that our communities have been doing, whether that's a traditional project that we would have accepted last year or any other year before, or whether that's COVID related. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good that we kind of added that language in there to kind of encourage uh, COVID related projects, but it's not just exclusive to COVID related projects. We do have a question right. uh, that came through. It says, has the Community Excellence Awards ever been given to a township? If so, how often? And I know the answer to that, but but I'll let you. No, you can answer it, Matt, because okay. I'm trying to rack my brain. Yeah, here. no. So the answer is no. We have never given it to a township, but I believe, and Emily, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that if you're a township member of the league, which we have a few of those, you're welcome to submit. I know, for example, uh, Lake Orion Township Supervisor uh, Orion Township is a member of ours. He just recently won one of our individual awards. So if like a member like Orion Township or Meridian Township, some of our league members have a project, they're more than welcome to submit. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. We And, and the more, the better. We'd love to see um, communities that haven't submitted projects in the past um, come through this year and submit something, you know, interesting or um, remarkable that they did over the last couple of years. Yeah. And yeah, that that's for sure. And uh, there is no charge to enter the competition. I, as a former journalist, so every time we submitted any kind of awards, we always had to pay money. So kind of a pay to play thing. But our program is free. You don't have to pay anything to submit an entry. And that kind of relates to the next question is, can we submit multiple entries? No. So it's one project per community. So you'll want to select the one that you are uh, most excited about, most proud of, that you'd like to showcase for this year one project per community. Um, and, you know, I think we should talk a little bit more about the process once you've submitted the projects. Yes. So um, May 14th is the deadline to get those projects into us. The application is available right on the website, cea.mml.org. It's really simple. Um, there are some fillable fields. You can attach photos, you can attach a video, you can attach a PowerPoint um, presentation if you'd like. And all of that material will get uploaded onto our website. So each project will have its own page on the CEA website. Um, from there, uh, four finalists will be selected from all of the applicants that will go on to compete at our convention. Uh, and the way we're selecting the four uh, finalists is this way. We have a panel of esteemed judges that will evaluate all of the applications submitted and they will select three projects, the top scoring projects according to the judges scores. Uh, we'll move on as three of the finalists and then we have an online vote portion, which I'm I'm pretty excited about because it's an opportunity for our communities to engage with their community members and um, showcase their project really, you know, within their own communities. And the online vote process opens on June 1st and ends on June 15th. So you have about two weeks to try to solicit votes, um, one vote per day. Um, and we'll have a running total up on the website during that period, I think of the top three projects. You'll see who's sort of in the leader, um, on the leaderboard for that. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll be doing a live announcement of the four finalists on Friday, June 17th. So you'll be able to tune in on Facebook Live, I believe is how we're going to uh, structure it. And um, we'll announce the four finalists from there. 
So our four finalists go on to compete at convention. They will do a presentation in front of um, all of our attendees there. And our attendees then have the opportunity to vote for their favorite project. And the Community Excellence Award will then be awarded to um, the highest vote getter there. So it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity to highlight incredible work that you're doing in your community. Um, and there's a lot of benefit to participating. Um, we've seen a, a, a great deal of media coverage. I'm sure you can speak to that a little bit more, Matt, on yeah. um, not just our winners, but our applicants and finalists. Yeah. And you also get a really cool trophy. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so we have a, a the CEA uh, program um, has traditionally sort of called it the race to the cup because we have a, a golden cup that travels uh, to the winner each year. Um, so whoever wins this year will then take possession of our golden cup for, yes. for and, the year and, until next year. Right. And sometimes the winners will come back when they give the cup to the next year's winner with a video and, and showing all the fun things they did with the cup. It could be Oftentimes you see it swinging at the city park or, you know, at, at the council meeting or, you know, sitting on Santa's lap. We've had a lot of creative uses of that. I do have another question that came in for you, Emily. Uh, would rebuilding a village after historical flood and dam failure qualify for a CEA entry? Yeah, I think that would definitely qualify for a CEA entry. Yeah. Um, for those who have more specific questions, they can feel free to reach out to me directly. I'll be sure to post my email address in the comment section uh, on Facebook, and I think on Zoom, uh, so that folks who are attending in either format are able to contact me. We also have uh, the rules posted right on the website. So again, that's cea.mml.org. You can go there to submit your projects. You can go there to read more about the program, see previous projects, um, see our previous winners, and also read the fine print on the rules. Um, there's not a ton, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but if we don't answer your question or you think of more after today, we, I do want you to feel comfortable reaching out to me because we'd love to see your project submitted. Yeah, and, and submitting is, is fairly easy. You talked about PowerPoints and videos and you don't have to have those things. I mean, it's, it's a fairly straightforward process, correct? Yeah, super straightforward. It's just an online fillable form. You'll be able to attach whatever files you um, are sort of seeking. Um, and I want to say, I mean, as long as you sort of already have the content ready in terms of, you know, what you want to say about your project, you know, copy and paste might take you five minutes. Okay. Uh, good, another good question here. Uh, uh, at what stage of the project is it appropriate to submit the application? So does it have to be done in the last year or the last two years, or, or does it have to be completely done or can be halfway done? Uh, so I would recommend, you know, sticking to projects that have been um, sort of reaching their completion within the last couple of years. We typically see projects that are complete um, presented. So I would recommend doing that. I have had communities reach out in the past um, who've wanted to submit with projects that aren't quite ready to be submitted or aren't quite complete. Um, and I think what we found is that when you have a complete project, you're able to present it um, in a way that um, our audience is, is able to connect with it. So pictures of the completed project, a video of the completed project, um, we've seen those entries be the most successful. Yep, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, you mentioned, so once the final four, then it goes to convention, we're hoping, fingers crossed, that our convention will be yes. in person this year in September yes. in Grand Rapids. So uh, they would they would have to submit there at the convention. So Grand Rapids is, you know, uh, for, for a lot of our communities, is a too far, but for some, it is it is a little bit of further away. So that's some things you need to think about um, kind of moving down the road. But that's, you know, that's kind of a couple steps away for sure. 
Yeah, so typically at our convention, as, as we talked about, um, during a general session, we have our four finalists come up on stage and give a presentation. It's timed, I think it's seven minutes. I'd have to go back and look at the rules. Right. Um, so they're timed, you've got a time limit. You can't stay up there for an hour talking about how great your project is, but um, you get that seven minutes in front of a general audience, um, our attendees of the convention who will then be able to go and vote on the project. Um, the other thing that is really interesting about being in person is that we typically have our, our finalists set up a booth um, with materials. Um, some of our finalists have come um, and brought monitors so they could show video of their project. Um, so you're able to display your project in whatever way feels comfortable for you. And during the convention, as we sort of have different vendors about um, and, and our attendees coming in to register or walking, you know, in that general space, um, you're able to talk about your project with one-on-one um, -on -one with attendees, which I think is quite cool. Okay. All right. Well, good. So I have the questions have already started moving into American Rescue Plan. So I think- Let's get think into it. Yes. <laughs> I think that's all the CEA questions. Emily, I really appreciate you being on. You're welcome to, you know, uh, hang on here if, if any more questions come in. Um, yeah. Or Go ahead. If you wouldn't mind, I'll just note a couple of other things that are coming up that are yes, you know, of interest to our members. So um, our newly elected officials training, uh, we had a really successful season of that following the fall election season. Uh, because of that, we have an encore session of that coming up on April 10th, um, and I believe there are still spots available. So if folks missed our newly elected officials training, they can join us on April 10th. Right. And then and that's just we also not, I mean, it's called newly elected, so it's basic stuff, but I mean, anyone that's a member can, can sign up for that, correct? Or a good yeah, refresher, maybe? Exactly. It's a great refresher course. And one of the things we've seen, particularly this year, one of the topics we cover is the Open Meetings Act. And with all of the changes that have happened um, this year with hosting meetings, it's been a popular session for seasoned elected officials who want to hear from the League's general counsel uh, on some of that information. So it's a great refresher course for those who haven't taken it in a while or have a specific interest in things like the Open Meetings Act, FOIA, we also cover a little bit of municipal finance and we do, uh, it's virtual, but we do have some interactive portions planned. Um, so that's coming up April 10th. And then sort of the next step of that is our elected officials academy. We have our core and advanced weekender, I believe registration might open today. Um, and that'll be held April 30th through May 1st. So um, some foundational topics covered in the core weekender. And our advanced weekender is a new agenda this year that will cover DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion themes. Okay. Um, so if folks have questions on those, just wanted to make sure I pointed those out um, for all of our attendees today who might be interested in attending. Yep, and you, you are right. I just checked our website, our events calendar, which I just put the link in the chat, does list all those, including the one uh, April 30th, May 1st, the core and advanced weekend or so. Um, that'll be, uh, I'm sure, well attended. And sometimes those have filled up. We've sold out. I know we did that. The, the one new um, yes. we had recently. Yes, our uh, virtual events, most of them, a lot of them have been quite full. We had to close our uh, newly elected officials training back in January, our last one we held. We had about 70 attendees um, and same with the weekender course. The weekender that we held back in February what did reach capacity quite quickly. So if you're interested in attending, you wanna make sure that you register well in advance. Um, and I think, We've had a number of virtual events, obviously, over the last year, but these have been really successful um, and in ways that we weren't 
um, we were a little surprised by, but not, I guess, because we're virtual. We, right. we have a lot of geographic diversity um, in attendees in these sessions that we don't always see in our in-person session. So yeah. while it's virtual, we're not in person and we'd love to see you in person, there are some, some benefits of, of opening up that access virtually. So we hope to see you there. Okay, and there's one question for you related to that. Can city employees that are not elected officials participate in these events or trainings? Yes, they can. They obviously can't participate in the elected officials academy if they're not elected officials. So they don't earn credits um, as part of that program, but we do allow officials um, or city employees, I should say, to attend those if they'd like. Okay. All right. Well, good. Anything else I forgot to ask you about, Emily? <laughs> That's it. Let's get on to the American Rescue Plan. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so right. much. Yep. So uh, we'll now we'll shift gears to the uh, to the our Lansing team. We have John Lamakia, Harris Otter Richards, and Jennifer Richtrink joining us today. Welcome, everyone. I hope you had a nice uh, holiday weekend. Uh, got a couple topics to dive into. Um, so let's start with John, just kind of just give us a general update what's happening with the legislature. I believe they're in their entering their second week of their two week uh, spring break, I guess you call it. Uh, go ahead and fill us in on the latest. Yeah, they uh, they were out last week and out this week. And I think that's probably why we're all smiling on this call right now. It's a, <laughs> you guys look little, very relaxed, for it's sure. A little, it's a little <laughs> bit of a reprieve from, you know, some of the, the normal day to day activities that we go through. Although I still somehow happen to have a Zoom call with a legislator tomorrow on a topic. So, you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily end. The pace just slows a little bit. Uh, but I think it's given us all the time to kind of sit back and relax. And that's why we're missing Mr. Hackmarth today, as I think he's up north enjoying the good weather uh, over the weekend. Um, but we do anticipate, obviously, when they come back here uh, a week from tomorrow, that things are going to start to ramp up for a, a couple of reasons. One, you just have the normal budgeting process that's going to start to take place. I mean, while the fiscal year doesn't end until September 30th, the, the goal of the legislature of late has been to try and get that done before they break for the summer, which seems a ways off. Um, but in terms of what they have to do and the process in which takes place, uh, that work will start relatively quickly. Uh, the governor's laid out her budget priorities. You know, the legislature's responded in, in some ways. Uh, they still have to deal with some uh, current stimulus funds that, that are not there from the American Rescue Plan, but from previous iterations of, of stimulus that need to be sent out uh, and come to an agreement on. And then there's the question, as we start to get resources in from the American Rescue Plan, what the legislature is going to do with that. And, and I will say, right, I mean, there's always a little bit of fear in terms of you know, the political dynamic, which we can't control, but I can tell you the conversations behind the scenes are very much local focused. Uh, and, and while maybe we're not talking specific, you know, dollar amounts or programs just yet, the idea and understanding amongst legislators that locals uh, are one of the components that have suffered uh, throughout the pandemic and that assistance may be in a broader sense than what just the individual allocations each member is going to get from a, a direct recipient standpoint from the American Rescue Plan uh, is still is still likely needed. Now, whether that's you know direct to the community, whether that takes place um, in assistance through grants for let's say water infrastructure, as we think about lead and copper, or even if we think about housing uh, and, and the evictions um, moratorium that I saw, and Jen might talk a little bit about this later. I saw the CDC extended the the 
moratorium on evictions until the end of June. So there's a lot of facets that play into this mess that that time will tell. Um, but we'll be getting ready and, and ramping up for a busy uh, April, May and June, no doubt. All right. So a uh, little bit, uh, one, a couple of things happened just before um, the, they went on recess. And one you wrote about, John, was the speed limits issue. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, and how this relates to our members? Yeah. So as, as probably many have heard me talk before, <coughs> excuse me, I've been working on a variety of speed limit issues for a number of years now, but one of the key, um, sorry, hold on, excuse me. <laughs> problem. <coughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> but one of the key issues we've talked about is, is flexibility when it comes to setting speed limits. And <clears throat> we've worked on a couple of things over the years that have gotten us closer. But at the same time, uh, we still need to, to offer some additional clarity, I would say. So uh, House Bill 4014, sponsored by Representative Slaw, does two critical components. The first thing it does is it, it makes really kind of a, a technical change to the way in which we look at setting speeds around the 85th percentile. And so under the law right now, you have to round to the nearest multiple of five uh, when, you, when it comes to setting that speed. And we're going to now say within five miles an hour. And the critical reason that's important is if you have to round up, you're actually getting beyond the 85th percentile of speed, which is the speed at which is determined by an old scientific theory that there is the least risk uh, for crashes between motor vehicles. Um, the issue with that though, although we might be creating uh, clarity amongst that, it, it still doesn't take into account, which has been critically important to us, which is all roadway users. So we've added a, another component to this legislation, which would allow you know, engineers within, within the city or village or, or those that they hire as consultants to do an engineering and safety study. And if there is a, a public safety component that would, would allow for a different speed to be set, the community could take that speed down to the 50th percentile of speed. And while that sounds like a lot, in reality, they're, they're minimal changes. So you might get five miles an hour here or there, but, but nothing typically beyond that. But it's great recognition for our communities to be able to, to have that flexibility uh, to, to make those decisions at the local level based on their individual context uh, that they see and the mitigating factors that would exist. Okay. Uh, we got one question in there about which bill number was that and it is HB 4014. Uh, Betsy, uh, go ahead. Uh, maybe you, are, oh, you already posted a link to John's blog about it. So thank you for doing that. Uh, related question, John, which was the next topic I was going to ask you about. Uh, any extension on the moratorium on water shutoffs? <clears throat> yeah, so the the Last year, uh, the legislature before breaking um, for the new year and beginning a new session, uh, Senate Bill 241, uh, sponsored by Representative Chang, was passed. And that bill codified the executive order that the governor had put out earlier in the year, which placed a moratorium on water shutoffs. That moratorium in that bill lasted until March 31st of this year. So uh, as of five days ago, that, that expired. And there was no legislation uh, that came in and extended that moratorium. And so the big question that, that we've had, uh, and, and I've also gotten a couple of calls on it is, well, you know, can we go back to shutting people's water off, which is not necessarily um, the easiest thing in the world to do. And we're not necessarily advocating for people to, sh to shut water off, but 
what we know in communities is that each community ha has a practice in which they utilize, uh, whether that's through notification and making sure they tell people about delinquent bills, whether that's putting that delinquency uh, on the tax bill at the end of the year. And I know some communities have even decided on their own because they have the internal flexibility to do so uh, to continue their own individual moratorium. Uh, but right now, Matt, there, there is no statewide ban on that. Uh, there's no federal ban on that. And so communities are back in that position where they were essentially pre-pandemic, allowing them to make uh, and follow their own individual guidance on, on how they want to handle that situation. Okay. All right, good. Well, we will get to the American Rescue Plan in a bit, but Jen, I'll let you get that tickle in your throat uh, addressed, and I'll turn it over to Jen and Harrison a little bit. Uh, Jen, I know, of course, the big issue you're dealing with has to do with the Open Meetings Act, and like the uh, water shutoff moratorium, you know, was... Uh, you know, you were allowed no excuse virtual meetings through March 30th. Um, so where does things stand now? And uh, what are we advising to our members to do on this issue? Yeah, Matt, so there was a, a lot of change, not a lot of change, but the, the deadline, the sunset did hit last week and um, the HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services did update um, the mask and gathering um, order so that public meetings are now exempt from that 25 um, capacity limit of attendees. Um, there's still requirements for masking and the six foot um, social distancing, um, but it's now uh, occupancy limits are uh, just like other capacities. Um, I was out last week, but I'll be posting a blog shortly. Um, and there was a blog posted, I believe Matt, you did it actually in my absence about um, our fact sheet. Yep. Um, we'll get a link posted to that here in the chat. Um, but um, no reason virtual meetings um, for any reason has expired. And so communities now either have to declare a local state of emergency, which the fact sheet outlines how you do that, um, or if your county has, um, how you're able to, to use that. Um, or there are a few uh, reasons why folks could continue virtually till the end of the year. One, again, the declaration of a local emergency, um, medical condition, or active military duty. And so that's outlined. And then um, again, I'll be posting a blog here after we get off this today um, with the update of the in-person uh, meetings of public bodies and um, the updated mask and gathering um, order that exempts public meetings. Okay, so there is a couple questions for you regarding that. And that one is, let's see if I found the, if a county declares a state of emergency in regard to the Open Meetings Act, if I have an in-person meeting and a council member is on vacation, can they participate in the meeting? Real specific question there. I guess we probably should say consult your local. Yes, local you should definitely. <laughs> you should definitely consult your local attorney. Um, but what I would just say in regard to that is, if you're on vacation, be on vacation. If you're sick, be sick. Don't participate in those meetings. Um, if you're if you're otherwise occupied. Um, so definitely talk to your uh, local legal representation on if that person should apply. But um, I would say overall, yes, um, it would be allowable if, if their county and um, again, talk to your legal representation, but we would recommend that locally you're adopting some kind of resolution, um, acknowledging the county's uh, local declaration, just so that you are um, have something on record of why you're still meeting virtually, um, pointing to that, de that declaration that your county has, um, has declared. 
So definitely, but again, I mean, this is some of the pushback we're getting from the legislature to just allow virtual meetings um, going forward um, using technology that exists. Um, there is no support on either side of the aisle um, to have elected officials, um, you know, wintering in different states and still participating in public meetings. Um, I and I don't see us getting anywhere um, on that point either anytime soon. Because like I said, we get pushback from both sides of the aisle. It doesn't matter which. Um, yeah. They just want folks, um, if you're going to be in the meeting, to be accountable. If you're on vacation, be on vacation. Yeah. But yeah, I, and, I, and I see that. But is there any is there any messaging that's being effective as far as you know, it seems like I've heard feedback from some of our members that have done, you know, virtual meetings where they have more audience participation and they have more people watching their council meetings than ever before. Is there is there any kind of movement on that that argument? I mean, there's definitely we've heard in, um, you know, anecdotally from many members that they've had an uptick in public participation um, just generally. You know, a lot of times you get an uptick depending on an agenda item, um, but that they've had more people because maybe you work at night, maybe you don't have daycare for your children. So you're able to log in and participate in the meeting when you before couldn't physically go there. And so, yeah, if you can still provide that opportunity for the public to participate, even if you're meeting in person, I mean, I think that is, that is a good thing, a best practice to be doing. Okay. Um, and uh, Rob, I see you could say you can't get the OMA link to work. Uh, we can send you an email after the fact with the, 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 um, to that blog or, or the fact sheet. Uh, we also had a question, is the capacity limit 50%? I think that regarding for you, Jen. Uh, oh, I think the 50%, it depends on the venue. Um, I'll look at that while you uh, move on to Harisana. Okay. Uh, I'll look that up and I'll answer it in just a minute. Okay, and then there's there a related question from Michael. Like, do you have a sample resolution acknowledging a county emergency? I believe in the fact sheet there is a sample resolution of the city of Kalamazoo's ordinance. But there's actually a couple of resolutions okay. there. And um, I do have, I think, a copy of Livingston County's um, resolution that we can share as well. Um, so uh, just send me an email. Um, it's Mike Kane you're talking about. I, I will send it to you, Mike. Um, I <laughs> yep. do have your email. So if anybody and, else needs it, please reach out to me. Okay. And for those that are just are having problems getting the link to work, I just put the link to our blog page, the Inside 28 page. And if you scroll down, you'll see the different uh, stories of, of the different blogs for the issues that we're talking about. Uh, John's couple of things are in there, the moratorium, the speed limits, and then the, the, um, the OMA issue fact sheets in there too. So if you just scroll down, you'll be able to find those. Hopefully that's a way for you to find it as well. So Harrison, I did want to uh, talk with you as well. Uh, you got a couple different things that you're working on. Um, one, uh, there's a, a recent solid waste policy. I don't know much about that. So I'll just let you fill in the blanks there. Sure thing, Matt, thanks. Yeah, so I've been mentioning for the past couple of months, part, part 115, excuse me, Part 115 Solid Waste Policy Rewrite, which has been ongoing for several, several years. Uh, this is specifically addressing how we deal with waste and recycling in the state of Michigan. It's been over 25 years since we've updated this policy. And regionally in the Midwest, we're pretty far behind of our neighbors and how we manage waste and other materials. So this update is gonna be really helpful just to streamline how we manage waste, manage recycling, put in some more parameters and regulation for other um, aspects of material management like composting, which doesn't really have a lot of structure right now. Um, so collectively for the state, a huge benefit. So this was an eight 
part package that moved through House Natural Resources right before break. Uh, strong support from Chairman Gary Howell, who's also a strong supporter of us at the league. Uh, and he was really a strong champion in pushing this through. We were supportive of the bills as they were presented, but there were some uh, items that were brought up in relation to specifically House Bill 4461, which deals with the establishment of the materials management plan and the incorporation of local unit input in that process. Specifically, the solid waste industry raised concerns about adjacent municipalities uh, to, to counties that would be facilitating a materials management plan in that community having the ability to provide input, even though they're not part of the county, something that we think is important because sometimes our neighbors get impacted by what's next door to. Uh, and the other one, a new provision in the bill would allow for local ordinances to address uh, items such as hours of operation, landscaping, screening, odor and dust outside of the materials management plan. So giving a lot more economy to our local units. And there was some pushback on that as well. But ultimately the bills move through committee without any major adjustments aside from some technical changes and they'll move forward to the Senate. So with strong support coming out of the house, but we're definitely looking to see what other amendments may be put forward to make adjustments to local control as we continue the conversation. Okay, well, good. Um, another big issue I think I'll probably get again a lot of steam uh, coming up is uh, there was a package of election bills. Uh, talk a little bit about those. Um, I think you told me before it was like $35 or something like that in this package. Right, right. Absolutely. So we've been very engaged on the House side, as many of our members may have seen and participated in some legislation that we've supported. Uh, but this past week, before um, the legislature went on break, Senate Republicans introduced a very robust, well over 30 bill package in the Senate, uh, specifically on elections. And there's a lot in here. What we're not going to do is come out and say 100% everything in there is bad or everything in there is good, because there's a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Um, but what I think we are going to do is look constructively at every single bill, look critically at every single bill and see what those impacts are to local units. There's a lot of things that we've done the past couple of years of Prop 3 that allowed better access to elections or streamlined processes and really getting people out to vote. So we support our clerks who have safely uh, managed elections for many, many years and the changes that they want to see. And we also support anything that would provide better access and improve access for our community members as they vote. So for example, you know, pre-registering 16 year olds is awesome. Um, making sure that local units in the state can't reimburse for postage is maybe not so awesome. So those are the things that we'll be looking at and seeing what, you know, what are the things that have been really beneficial to our local members as they've been facilitating their elections and really trying to cut through the noise that, you know, this may happen. Cause like John said earlier, we can't control how political things get. We hear that this is probably gonna be a very political dialogue, but we're also very focused on what allows us to do our jobs effectively and responsibly. Um, and so we're really happy that we have a lot of input from our members across the state, whether they are clerks, appointed, elected, and also our individual members. And then also too, just working collaboratively with all of our partners who have the best interest in mind to make sure that Michigan elections work safely and fairly. So we're looking forward to be part of that conversation. All right, good. I did want to get to Jen and talk about the American Rescue Plan, but uh, Jen, I did see you posted in there a link to the 50% issue. There was also a kind of a specific question. Um, do you know if Oakland County has declared emergency to continue virtual meetings? And then another one is um, a kind of a real specific one that I would probably put them to their local municipal attorney, but go ahead, Jen. I do not know specific to Oakland County. Um, probably google it here and see if we can find find that but i do not know off the top of my hand um head 
Um, the other one specific, um, I mean, if they look at the blog with the fact sheet and how you can declare a local emergency or how you can participate um, virtually, I think, and again, talk to your, your municipal attorney about um, kind of, it sounds like you're asking about a hybrid um, and just being aware that you would need to post that meeting um, uh, both ways as a hybrid, as in person um, and, and follow all those things. But yeah, you'd wanna work with your legal representation um, to answer that. Okay. And yeah, that's kind of the question. Can it be both virtual for staff public and in order to accommodate the six foot rule? Um, and then there was one specific to, you know, what if somebody on the council doesn't want to, but the rest of the ones do want to meet in person? And that question probably again is for your local municipal attorney. It definitely is because the, the question that needs to be answered is if your council, whether all or public, partial is meeting in person and you have someone from the public that shows up and wants to um, attend the meeting, um, can you turn them away? If so, what's the justification? Um, what kind of possible litigation are you opening yourself up to? So those are all questions you need to talk to your attorney about. Okay. All right. Uh, so now, John, I did want to talk to you about the American Rescue Plan. Uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot here, waiting for additional guidelines to come out. Uh, waiting for a more accurate lists as far as who's getting what and if villages are included. What can you update us on, on that? Those issues, John? Yeah, ha happy to do it, right? I mean, I, I don't want to say a, a, a lot uh, hasn't changed, but, but in some ways a, a lot hasn't changed, you know, mainly because still that work behind the scenes is going on as Treasury develops that guidance. And I know there was an opportunity for, for our members last week, last Friday, to join a call um, with the, the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. I know there's a few people on this call, at least, that were on that. And then we had a separate opportunity later that afternoon to have a, a follow-up conversation with that office uh, and, and directly have some conversation with, with those at Treasury. And they are working night and day to, to literally develop that guidance as, as quickly as possible. I think what's important to, to remember here is, is the intentionality that they have behind developing the guidance, right? And, and they really don't want to get into that situation where they're going to have rolling guidance that, that we faced uh, the last time the stimulus package place, where there's kind of that ever-changing goalpost, so to speak. And, and so they're really taking their time to make sure that it's as accurate as possible and, and as clear as possible. You know, the timeline in which they have to work off is still 60 days um from the the passage of, of the legislation so that legislation passed on march 11th so we're about five weeks away from from that 60-day time period and the money needing to be out the door and we we would anticipate and continue to anticipate based on what we're hearing is that guidance should be out here around the end of this month so sometime in the next three to four weeks we will anticipate that and then the question about the villages matt still when we are are, are pressing both uh, you know, NLC and our partnership with them uh, on as, as well as Treasury for two reasons. One, you know, we, we know we have members asking questions about you know, what is the, the, the allotment that I will be getting out of this, and that's an important question to ask. Uh, but two is also making sure that we stay on them to make sure that the list is accurate, right? Which is, is, is critical uh, in the development of this. And so we have full confidence that our villages are included, right? There's no question there. It's just making sure that that Treasury and those that are working on this are equipped with the proper information to ensure that the, the way in which our local government is structured here in Michigan between cities, villages, and townships, which is not consistent across all 50 states, 
is accurately accounted for. Uh, and so as those estimates come out or, or final numbers come out, uh, that there are no questions anymore about what the actual amount is. And, and as soon as we have that, uh, and again, I think we're operating on a similar timeline in the next three to four weeks to have something like that, um, we will make sure we produce that for our members. Okay. I did see the National League of Cities, our, our kind of parent organization, um, did post a, a list on their website. Uh, I can have Betsy post that in there. But again, that does not, I looked at it this morning, it just still doesn't include villages. How will that work for our villages? Because I know some of them say, well, do we have to get our money from the township or we still get it directly? Mm -hmm. We've seen questions like um, on those lines. Yeah, no, I, I think that's always good to help help clarify for those that haven't heard this before. Uh, you know, the money comes in in, in two separate um, buckets, essentially, and, and then it comes in two tranches, right? And I'll explain both of those so everybody, you know, is very clear about what I mean. Yeah, I don't even that. know what a tranche is. It's a new word. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fancy word uh, that we like to use uh, every once in a while to make things sound good. Um, <laughs> But no, uh, so, so there are, are two buckets of money, one for you know, our entitlement communities, which are recognized by HUD as direct CDBG eligible uh, recipients. Um, and so there's that, and there's about 40-ish communities in the state of Michigan that qualify under that. And then there's everyone else, which ends up being about 1,500 local units of government when you look at the remaining cities, villages, and townships over there that bucket of money will be sent directly to the state of Michigan, right? And then the state of Michigan has 30 days in which to distribute that per capita to each of those individual localities. So just like we would do as you think about a constitutional revenue sharing distribution. So it's not gonna go to the township and then have to come to the village. It's gonna go straight from the state to the city village or township uh, in, in that regard. Um, the two tranches I talked about, Matt, is that this money is, is split up into two payments uh, that communities will receive. They will receive their first payment, uh, which will be 50% of their allocation, 60 days from the, the time in which uh, the law passed, or, and that's if you're a direct recipient. If you are a, a recipient through the state, it would be that 60 plus the, the 30 that I mentioned. Okay. Um, and then the, the next check would come to you 12 months after that first disbursement. Uh, and then okay. that would get you your 100% your of, of allotment in those, in those two categories. All right, is there any chance, particularly for those 1500 communities that it's gonna get their allocation from the state that it requires some kind of state legislature vote that things could get kind of hung up in the process? Yeah, so again, good, good question because you know we, we've dealt with statutory revenue sharing before, right? So there's always sort of that, that little bit of, of sort of in the back of your mind thought, like what's gonna happen with this? Is the state gonna keep it? You know, what's gonna happen there? In this case, right? So the state has 30 days in which to disperse that money to those local units of government from the time they received it. There is one sort of small caveat to that, that the state can apply for a hardship exemption, which would allow them up to 120 days in which to disperse that. I don't see that necessarily as likely happening here. And then the question is, is will, will the legislature, you know, get into some argument with the governor or amongst themselves and not get that money out? Right. There is a significant financial penalty associated with non-disbursement. Ah. And essentially for every dollar they don't disperse to the local unit of government, they have to give a dollar back of the money that they received. Oh. And so that, that is a, a very stiff financial penalty for the state should they not act. Um, and so we think because of that, 
and, and that was something that that we all pushed for in, in our advocacy for this is to make sure it didn't get hung up in the legislative process that those types of things were in there uh, and so we feel you know confident at this point that that money is going to get out in its entirety as it as it should uh, to our members all right a couple questions for you john one is uh our fiscal year ended march 31st which fiscal year would this be recorded in i'm assuming getting the first tranche probably they're talking about yeah so i i you know, I'll, I'll answer that question this way. I, I think it, it would likely get recorded, um, you know, in, in the current fiscal year in which you would be accepting the money. But the important thing to remember here is that it's less about probably the fiscal year in which you receive the money and the fact that we have until the end of 2024 in which to spend it, which okay. again, allows us at the local level to be very intentional about what we do with this money, gives us time to think about it from an investment standpoint, but also helps us deal with what we've talked about is sometimes the long tail that impacts local units as we deal with things that might happen on, on the property tax side and the valuation that might be associated with it as people start to go to their boards of review and, and, and challenge some of those. But, you know, again, I think that's the most important thing is to recognize that we do have time in which to spend this money uh, yeah. until the end of 2024. Yeah, that's really important. Uh, we had our CEO on here a couple of months recently and he also talked about this at our capital conference about how really this one-time funding is an opportunity to kind of chart your own future and really um, look at ways you can invest this money to, to best help your, your community and, and, and your citizens so um, you know getting those guidelines will, will obviously help our members and make some of those decisions as well uh, one other question uh, regarding villages again if the ARP allocation is per capita, could villages use the percentage of population to determine the ARP funds that they're going to get? Yeah, so I, I wish it was that simple. Um, and, and <laughs> it, it never and is, it, right? <laughs> and it never it never is. And that really comes down to the fact that, you know, while the state might be getting $4.4 billion, you know, the counties are getting about 1.9 of that. Cities, villages, and townships, you know, are getting, uh, you know, a little over 2 billion of that. And then that two billion gets split into those two categories that I mentioned, and and so it's not a total population that actually exists in that math problem. I'll say, yeah. and we've we've looked at at trying to break that down and deal with it, um, you know. But even when you think about population estimates and and whether or not because the language isn't specific to whether they're using 2010 data or 2019 estimates when it comes to the census. Right. Current census numbers aren't out yet from the last one. So there are a number of unknowns there. And especially, you know, when you have a smaller population, uh, like many of our communities do here under that, that 10,000 threshold, those numbers could, could swing drastically in some ways if, if you don't create that correct calculation. And so we've just advised and, and, and we're doing our best to do so too, is to be patient and make sure we just get accurate information think about what those resources, you know, could be used for. And then as those allocations come out uh, with accurate numbers, be ready to implement some of the things that you've decided to, to think about and make your community better with. Okay. All right. Um, are there, is there any, another question, is there any clarity around the categories yet? I'm assuming they mean categories that you can spend it or can't spend it, I'm guessing. Yeah. So that is still what we are waiting for in, in the guidance. Right. And, and again, while some of the things within the, the legislation were very specific, it, you know, it did call out, you know, water, sewer or broadband. And, and we're asking the question around the word or and, and whether that means you can spend it on just one of those three or if Treasury will offer some additional guidance where you could spend it on all three of those. 
we know we can't spend it uh, on pension debt, um, those types of things. But some of the very specific stuff that that our members uh, have been asking about will all come forth in that treasury guidance. Okay. And then uh, one kind of follow-up question to confirm, if you are an entitlement village, the money will come direct from the state to the village and not the township in which the village resides. That's the question. Yeah. So, so two things here. <clears throat> one, and Jen, you can shake your head. There is not a single village in the state that is an entitlement community, right? And, and because of that, payments, to, to the villages, so our, our members that are villages, will come direct from the state of Michigan based on a per capita calculation, right? Okay. It will not shuffle through the township. The township won't be involved in any way, uh, shape, or form uh, as it relates to you getting the, the resources that are within the American Rescue Plan. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. I don't think I missed any questions. Betsy, I haven't seen any posts from you saying I missed any. I'll let me know if I did. Um, any other things you guys that I didn't bring up that you wanted to touch on real quick? Well, I think um, John mentioned the eviction um, moratorium being extended. And so um, I looked that up really quick just in case anybody um, had any questions about that. And it, of course, I closed that screen, but it has been extended till the end of June. And I will post a blog later this afternoon um, just with the links. Um, so if our members have uh, residents that come and ask them questions or they share with their local not housing nonprofits, um, it will be there later this afternoon. But yeah, it did get extended to the end of June. Good, good. Thank you for that real-time uh, research there. All right, so I appreciate everything. Uh, hey, we talked hey about, Matt. Go ahead, John. Yep. Matt, I, I, just, I want to mention one other thing because we talk about posting blogs all the time, which is, is something that I'm working on right now. So we, yeah. we have the American Rescue Plan. We also now have the American Jobs Plan, uh, which right. was the infrastructure plan that, that President Biden uh, rolled out last week, uh, you know, over $2 trillion in investment. And it's an infrastructure plan. And, and, and really what I want to mention here is that it is a very broad picture on infrastructure, which we've talked about organizationally for a long time. While you know the the typical thought process around infrastructure tends to be roads and bridges, and right. you know as of late has been a little bit more water and sewer. But this plan incorporates everything from from those traditional infrastructure components uh, that we see there to what we now know is a, a significant form of infrastructure broadband. But mm. housing's included in it. You know, when we think about uh, climate uh, and, and the future that's that that's there, that's included in it. Electrification as we move maybe more towards uh, an environment that has more electric vehicles. Um, housing, I can't remember if I said that, workforce development. Yeah. No, I mean, so it, it is a, a broad-based uh, infrastructure proposal, much like we've talked about infrastructure organizationally, which, which is really sort of this community aspect uh, of infrastructure, broad-based, and, and again, significant resources. Now, I think the big question is, is when or if or how long, if ever, uh, this is going to come to fruition. Um, you know, I think much like the American Rescue Plan, there's the desire for it to, to be uh, bipartisan, uh, but yeah. there's clear indication that there could be some challenges with that, much like the American Rescue Plan, and then the willingness to, to maybe go at it, um, you know, kind of alone, so to speak. Uh, you know, at least party line based uh, to try and get something done. So we will be monitoring it closely. I mean, this is, you know, 
in its infancy. Yeah, uh, I was going to say we're just at, at the beginning at this, this point, yeah. and so a lot can change. There, there's there's a, a lot of parts to it, and and different than the American Rescue Plan, to be very honest with you, which was really picked picked up from uh, a bill draft known as the Heroes uh, Act at at the time. This one has to go through all original drafting, uh, and that's going to take time. That's going to flesh out details. There's going to be a lot of things that have to go into this. Um, but ultimately, at, at the end of the day, I think what, what we've seen and kind of what's been both uh, you know talked about in some of our meetings and then also publicly, maybe the earliest that this could get done would be towards the end of August. Um, but I also think because of much like we do here, not wanting to get into election cycles, probably needs to be wrapped up by the end of the year uh, for it to really have a chance to, to move forward. We did get one question came in from uh, Pat and, uh, and Fenton. Uh, she goes, any insight into uh, whether communities can plan for special events for the summer? <laughs> Jen's whipping out her Magic Gate Ball. I know in Fenton, they have the, the Steel Day race and Fourth of July activities and Apple Fest. They have a lot of great festivals down there. So what do, what's your Magic Ball say, Jen? And then what's your serious answer to that question? <laughs> it says it is certain. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, as the, the weather is starting to warm up and the days are um, daylight longer, you know, more people are getting outdoors. And um, I, I think we'll see, you know, outdoor events possibly happening. I mean, none of us have a crystal ball and know exactly, but I think it's just on, you know, the community to make the best decision on what parameters you put around those events um, to make sure you're keeping folks um, safe and, and, but still outdoors and, and being able to engage. So. Okay. Yeah, Matt, I, I know at Capitol Conference, we asked Dr. Caldoun that very direct question in our breakout session. And, and she like, if I was sitting on, on the other side of that question, wouldn't have given a, a direct, direct answer either. Um, you know, but, but Department of Health and Human Services is going to continue to, to, to look at that. I think they're more aware of, of, you know, needing additional sort of language and guidance around some of those activities. And then I think what we see now, right? I mean, even, even with opening day for baseball uh, here a few days ago, you know, stadiums at just over 10% capacity. So I think we're seeing some of those outdoor activities being allowed early on, um, but obviously, you know, numbers and in, in cases and, and infection rate will dictate exactly what DHHS decides to do at the end of the day. Uh, but we'll be watching that. We, we've made it clear to them that that's an important question for, for us and our members, and we'll continue to stay on top of it. Okay. Well, good. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, and uh, we had a great crowd, big numbers today. So I appreciate everybody with uh, day after Easter. I wasn't sure what kind of numbers we get, but I appreciate all, all the viewers. Just want to remind you that we do have our newly elected officials training on April 10th. Um, and our, then we have that um, core weekender one coming up uh, that Emily talked about. And then don't forget our next uh, Live with the League is, I have it written down, April 19th, I believe. Yes, it is. And then don't forget the CEAs. Uh, submit your CEAs by May 14th. Jen, did you have something to add? Yep, I just have one thing, one more thing um, about the Open Meetings Act. Um, I think I misunderstood the question earlier. I thought uh, Mike or someone was seeking a county resolution to look at. Um, I do not, and as far as I know, we do not have a copy of a local resolution um, that's being declared off of a county resolution. So if you do have one of those locally, please email it to me so I can share with the folks who are asking to see um, an example of that and we can add it to our resource list as well. Okay, thank you for that clarification. 
All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And until next time, we'll see you then. Thank you very much. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mnl.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.